Welcome to Wyoming My 307. My name is Carla Mowell and today's episode was a bit of a struggle for me. My career is in parenting and early childhood education, not financial or legal services. But like most people, I had heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but really just couldn't wrap my head around it and honestly didn't even want to. Well, then I learned that Wyoming is at the leading edge of innovation in the field of digital currency and the blockchain industry. What? That led me to a lot of reading, and eventually I snagged an interview with Caitlin Long. Caitlin is a Wyoming native, a 22-year Wall Street veteran, and a graduate of Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School of Government. So not only is she an expert, but she brought the concept of blockchain to the Wyoming legislature. Over the course of four years, she shepherded legislation through, and now Wyoming is a national leader in blockchain and cryptocurrency. We also talked about beef chain, non-fungible tokens, and decentralized autonomous organizations. Don't run away yet. Let's hear her explain it. Welcome, Caitlin Long. Would you introduce yourself to us first real quick? Sure. Uh, I'm a Wyoming girl like you, grew up in Wyoming, uh, went off to the big world for almost 30 years, uh, spent a lot of time in New York on Wall Street, did some a lot of work with some of the biggest companies in the United States and got the crypto bug in 2012 is when I first came across Bitcoin, really dug into it in 2013, and then uh, went full time in 2016. And then moved back home after having helped the Wyoming legislature for a couple of years voluntarily from, from the New York area. I moved back home full time to Wyoming in 2019, a few months before COVID. Very lucky timing. Oh, wow. That is lucky timing. Well, I, I found this topic absolutely fascinating and I've kind of been avoiding learning about it because it just seems so complex and out of my league. But When I heard that there's a Wyoming connection with Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, you know, blockchain, I thought, well, it's time to kind of dig in a little bit and figure out what what this really is. And I don't know if I've done it. So I'm going to ask you a few general questions before we get to some Wyoming specific questions, because I feel like this is one of those things that it's just hard to wrap your brain around if you're not in in that industry. So. Most of us have already heard the term maybe Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, but from what I've read, that fits under a much broader topic or idea of blockchain technology. Could you give us just the mom and pop explanation of the blockchain? Sure. It's just a database. It's a ledger system. And what I... What I tend to describe that folks of different generations can relate to is different. Those that that remember the concept of the inter-office envelope, um, it's easiest to explain, to to analogize to that. Um, Steve Lupien at the University of Wyoming came up with this, and I think it's a really helpful analogy because if you can picture an inter-office envelope, it has a destination, it has a a sender, it has a signature, and everywhere that office envelope has been is transparent and traceable to everyone who has received it and can go back and, and look who else has touched this envelope. And it's got, I don't know, maybe 80 different lines. And so it can be reused and reused and reused. 
And so this is essentially a, a digital inner office envelope. It's a, it's a database technology. It's a ledger system that keeps track of where something has been and what's inside that inner office envelope is data. Um, we'll come back and talk about that, but the data can move around and, and it's traceable. You know who's, who's seen it and you don't necessarily know the person's name, but you know their mail stop number. That's the analogy for, for folks who remember inner office envelopes. For, for a generation who grew up fully digital, the best analogy is it's Google Docs, but without Google. Google Docs, uh, if you're writing a paper together with a group of people in school, you all are editing it together and you can update it in real time. But the problem is that Google owns your data. So if we could have a means by which everybody could just edit a database, a spreadsheet, for example, in real time together, and nobody owns it because everybody collectively owns it, you just take Google out of the equation. That's the way I think a lot of folks um, that grew up natively digital understand it. But if we step back, what what is a digital asset? It's just a piece of data and it moves on these ledgers I just described. What's so special about it is that Satoshi Nakamoto figured out how to make data unique. That's the aha. So if you think about email, your email, there's an infinite number of times it can be forwarded. But what Satoshi did was figure out how to make data provably unique. And if something is provably unique, then it's scarce. And if it is scarce and it's desired, then it might have value as a collectible. And so now you start to see how this turns into this craze we're seeing right now, non-fungible non tokens, where a lot of celebrities are issuing these because they're collectibles the same way we think of sports memorabilia. They just happen to be in digital form. There will only be X number of you know photos with this celebrity on it. The other piece is you can use it as a token for value transfer, which is just a fancy way of saying you can use it for money. You can use it for payments. Hopefully that helps folks uh, help shed a little bit of light on this mysterious industry. Yeah. I mean, that helped me because honestly, I'm straddling both of those. When I first started working, there was such a thing as that envelope that went around and you had to sign sure. that you read things or move it on to the next stop. And of course, now I do a lot of work in groups and shared documents. So I, I do think that is a great analogy for that piece of it. But let's drill down. You mentioned the Bitcoin part, which is like money. You use the word mm -hmm. money, which kind of surprised me, but you use the word money. And somewhere in the back of our minds, we still think of our US dollar as being backed by gold, even though it turns out that it is not. In fact, the term that I learned from looking into this is that dollars and many other currencies are considered fiat currency, which means that they're worth something because we all agree that they're worth something. So my confusion about cryptocurrency has been a little bit about like, where does the value come from? Can you explain that in simple terms? Sure. Money is just a social construct. It doesn't have value because the government says it does. It has value because other people recognize that it has value. And I think the misnomer of Bitcoin not being backed by anything comes from those who grew up with money that was actually backed by gold. But what's interesting is that the next question becomes, what gives gold value? Why, does, why is gold valuable? It doesn't have industrial uses. It's definitely got use as jewelry. But here's, here's the reason why gold through millennia of human history evolved to be money. Gold grows at about a one and a half to 2% rate per year. That's how much we're 
we we humans are pulling out of the earth collectively. It's about one and a half to two percent per year. And that's about the same growth rate as the human population over time. And so what that means is that gold was the good that evolved to be the recognized medium of exchange by people because it retained its value. It was honest. It was not being diluted by growing faster than the population. And for those who, who like algebra, anytime you, you, know, you increase your denominator of a fraction, what are you doing? You're reducing its overall value. And so I think intuitively people understand that if they're printing a lot of money, there are a lot more of them to go around and each one is less valuable. And uh, the nice thing about gold is no one could create new gold. Humankind was only able to find enough of it to grow one and a half to two percent per year. And that's why it evolved to be money. Now, the dollar used to be connected to gold, it, but it's not anymore. The connection to, to gold broke in 1971. In fact, actually, the pure gold standard broke, broke decades before that. We were on something called the Bretton Woods Exchange Standard after World War II. But the pure gold standard really broke in the world related to World War I. Britain actually broke it to finance the war. And so we ended up basically just moving away from the gold standard in steps but the the last tether to gold in the United States was broken by Nixon in 1971. The U.S. dollar has been backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government since then. Technically, it's actually backed by the Federal Reserve. It's an IOU by the Federal Reserve. But what does that really mean? It, again, it comes back to, all right, when the dollar was backed by gold, why was gold valuable? Why do we accept an IOU from the Federal Reserve, which has a relatively small balance sheet um, as backing the entire value of all the dollars outstanding? And the answer is it's a social construct. And once you make that leap, the, gold doesn't have to back uh, the dollar anymore, or you know, crypto doesn't actually have to be backed by anything because being backed by something didn't really mean what we all thought it did. It's a social construct and people recognize ledgers, honest ledgers as a means by which to store the economic value that they generated during their lifetime. And you want the most honest ledger. And over time, this social construct we call money has evolved so that mankind recognized the most honest token, the most honest ledger that we could store our the value of our hard-earned work as money. And one of the things about crypto and here's one of the ahas. The inflation rate of Bitcoin is roughly the same as the inflation rate of gold right now. It is, it is what some would call hard money, honest money. And the honest money, again, people want to store the fruits of their labor in the most honest money that can't be diluted by a government that wants to just print more of it for whatever reason. No one's printing more Bitcoin and no one's making more gold. And they grow at about the same rate, which is about the same rate of the population growth, which means that this is an honest ledger and everyone can use it without, without having their pockets picked in, in subtle ways. Okay. I'm going to take this in another direction now because the way that it's created, if you will, the money, the cryptocurrency is through Bitcoin mining. And I was just really fascinated by that term. 
I didn't fully understand what you said about cryptocurrency right now, and I'm hoping this is going to get me over the hump. Okay. My great-grandfather was a coal miner in Jibo, Wyoming, and I mm, have wow. his little notebook still, it's right in front of me, oh, where wow. he logged how many coal cars he filled every day, because that's, you know, wow. they paid him. That's how they got paid. Sure. Right. Yeah. And, and he wanted to keep them honest <laughs> and not, right. And not yeah. um, short him. And that's such a concrete image. Like when I tell you my grandfather mm -hmm. had a little notebook and he wrote it down and he dug coal out of the earth. It's just like very easy to imagine that. Well, the activity that underlines the blockchain is called Bitcoin mining, but I have no mental image of what a crypto miner looks like. So can you paint us a picture of that? And maybe that'll help me understand how cryptocurrency value is set or achieved. So remember I said that Bitcoin has the same inflation rate right now as gold. I mm -hmm. think it's 1.4% in Bitcoin. I think it's around 1.5% in gold. So mining is related to the inflation rate. Inflation is the creation of new Bitcoin that don't exist. And so it is very analogous to your grandfather's coal mining. Your grandfather was pulling coal out of the earth for use that didn't exist until it came out of the earth. And what's happening with Bitcoin is those Bitcoins are not in existence until they're mined. So that's why there is an analogy. But the mining that Bitcoin miners do is done through math as opposed to through physical labor, digging up something in the physical world. It, specifically, the inflation rate of Bitcoin, which is the rate of new Bitcoin that is added every time a block is added to the Bitcoin blockchain, is cut in half every four years. So Bitcoin gets to become actually even scarcer than gold. And in the next half, what's called halving, where the, the inflation rate gets cut in half, what does that mean? It means it's going to be the hardest money ever known by humankind because gold has been the hardest money that was widely recognized as money. And Bitcoin's about to become even scarcer than gold because every year the halving happens in 2024 and then again in 2028 and then again in 2020 in 2032, that inflation rate goes from 1.6% to 0.8% to 0.4%. It gets, it, the, the money gets even harder. Now, how does the mechanic work? Our new Bitcoin created. The algorithm through which Bitcoin operates, which is just software that it's an open source software. Any one of us can go download the Bitcoin Core software onto a node and start running a, a node on the network. And there are a, a, typically about 100,000, give or take, active nodes on the Bitcoin network. They're, they're located all around the world. The miners are the ones that essentially are the V-Sign MasterCards of the Bitcoin network. They are the payment processors. They are the ones that say, yes, here's a, here's a transfer of a Bitcoin that has been proposed and we are accepting that transfer of the Bitcoin and, and adding it to the Bitcoin blockchain. Remember, I talked in the beginning about how these currencies, is, they're, they're just ledgers. The blockchain is just a new type of ledger. It's just a new type of database. And it's a very transparent one. And every 10 minutes, on average, there is a new block added to the Bitcoin blockchain and the miners get what's called a block reward for doing the transaction processing. And right now they get 6.25 Bitcoins per block. So every miner gets compensated for the cost that they have in mining the Bitcoin with, what's, with the, the new Bitcoins that are created. And so everybody in the Bitcoin universe is being diluted by 1.6% per year. 
And that's, again, 1.4. 1. 1. That, that's roughly the, the inflation rate of gold. Every owner of gold is being diluted by that same amount per year because there's new gold being pulled out of the earth and, it, and the old gold is not being destroyed. It, it's not like coal where it's burned off. It's in, in the case of gold, it's never, it's never burned off. It might lose it, but it, it never goes away. So Bitcoin is very similar. You might lose your Bitcoin, but there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. Each one can be divided into 100 million pieces called Satoshis. And basically the gist is the mining business is very profitable. Those, those miners are taking computer processors and creating Bitcoins out of electricity and computer equipment. And so if you want a visual Imagine a data center. You've probably seen data centers with rows and rows and stacks and stacks of servers connected to large power plants. And that's what a Bitcoin mine looks like. Probably tens of thousands of what's called mining rigs. They're just servers. They look like computers. But you don't need to be industrial scale in order to mine Bitcoin. You can mine Bitcoin in your garage, and a lot of people do. And some people actually, because of how, how the mining rigs work, they throw off a lot of heat. They also throw off a lot of noise. But some people actually heat their garages with Bitcoin <laughs> mines, because why not? It's throwing off a lot of heat. Right. Okay. I think I'm getting closer. I'm going to change tax again. And I'm just going to kind of make a leap, just like I don't question the electricity system. I just flip a switch and it turns on. I'm going to just kind of let what you told me simmer a little bit and see if I can understand it better. But I want to switch now to talk a little bit about how all of what you've described fits into Wyoming as a state, as a culture, as a community. Um, You know, we're such an isolated and a rural state. How yes. how does blockchain technology, this very technical thing that you just described, how is that a good fit for Wyoming? Why doesn't it fit better where you were before, you know, in financial centers such as Wall Street? Ah, great question. Because these this new technology devolves power back to individuals. And power has been concentrating in big banks and big financial institutions for decades. And reality is that you don't need intermediaries in these new networks. It can all be done electronically. Yes, there are service providers just like there are in the internet, right? We have our email, we have Google, we have Facebook, we have, we have large tech companies, but you don't have to use them if you don't want to. You can use smaller providers as well. What's great about the internet is if you know how to code, you don't need to go through an intermediary for email purposes. You can use what's called the TCP IP, you can use SMTP. These are open source protocols that allow you to communicate with anyone with an internet connection. You don't need the Facebooks of the world that just make it really pretty and easier from a user interface perspective to do it. If you know how to code, you don't need any of those intermediaries. And the same thing's true in crypto. In fact, you don't actually need to code. You just need to know how to keep your data secure because remember, these are unique pieces of data and you need to be able to keep them secure if you don't want to have to have an intermediary. And so that's a very big threat to the big banks and to the power structure of the United States. It, it, it devolves power back to the people. And, and frankly, ultimately what I think it really does is it gets us to the benefit of the internet. The internet was supposed to be a peer-to-peer communications protocol. We've ended up basically handing over all this authority to these large tech companies and the same thing happened in financial services, except it never really adopted the internet. 
the internet is, we didn't, we didn't have a token for peer-to-peer exchange of value on the internet. We do have a way to have peer-to-peer exchange of information on the internet. And a lot of people call Web3 the exchange of value on the internet. We're still using, when we go on Amazon, we're still using a credit card mostly to purchase things because there isn't such a thing as internet money. We weren't ever able to basically make data unique to, to be able to confirm that the internet money was indeed valid and, and was yours when you paid for it and you transferred it legitimately to the merchant. Well, now we have that. Cryptocurrencies are internet money. And so what it enables us to do is get to what the internet always should have been, which is a peer-to-peer structure. And um, we don't have to go through intermediaries. And so, yes, the traditional financial industry is, is definitely scared by, by all this technology. But the great thing about Wyoming is we're a pretty independent state. People are pretty self-sufficient. And it really did tap into the ethos of Wyoming that the legislators understood this early, that there was something special here. And of course, for Wyoming, as you know, the oil and gas and minerals industry has been the dominant employer in the state of Wyoming for decades. Unfortunately, it's not going to continue to be as dominant in the sense that the jobs have dwindled in the state and therefore the revenues that pay for the schools have dwindled in the state. So the legislature was very interested in finding something where it could be early from an economic development standpoint. And a number of legislators on both sides of the aisle really understood that digital property needed a way to protect property rights. And so the analogy that I can bring to Wyoming is the Johnson County Cattle War. Back when the West was being won, and there was a, frankly, a civil war, a miniature civil war fought in, in and around Buffalo, Wyoming, um, KC, Wyoming, over whether ranchers could fence out trespassers or whether the cattle drives had to have access to the open plains. The answer was, no, you can, if you own the property, fence out the trespassers and, keep, and, and protect your private property by building a fence. Well, this is basically now digital property and we can build a fence around it and we can define property rights around it. And a lot of people in the legislature intuitively understood that. And I think that was another big reason why it made more sense to the legislature in Wyoming than it would have made five years ago to the legislature in New York. Yeah, I was wondering how that connection was made to the legislature, and I'm sure your leadership had a lot to do with it, just being able to explain it in a way that folks who might not be in the financial industry can understand enough to be able to decide whether to adopt it or not. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, if you grew up in the traditional financial world, I think it's hard to understand. If you grew up in the world of, I I like to keep my gold and silver coins in, <laughs> maybe under my mattress um, and maybe I stash stuff away in a you know safe deposit box and I buy my wife jewelry because um, it's a better store of value than financial assets. Then, then I think you get this, but it's digital and, and that's daunting to some people. There's definitely a generational divide. Although, I mean, some of the people I work with are in their seventies and eighties and when we were working with the Wyoming legislature, I like to tell the story. There was a Latina grandmother whose granddaughter drove her to this meet and greet we hosted with the Wyoming legislature. And she let us know that she was mining Bitcoin in her garage. So you just, it was, a, it was such a cross section. You had her and she was probably in her sixties or seventies. 
And then you had um, teenagers who drove from Newcastle, probably a four hour drive to come meet legislators. And what the legislators said when they walked into that room, and this was in 2017, I believe, they walked into that room and said, wow, these are not the usual faces that we usually see at a meet and greet. And it was just so wonderful because they recognized something special was happening. And when they saw that we weren't all drug dealers and, you know, gaming and porn and all the, you know, parade of, of horribles that folks tended to, to think early users of cryptocurrencies were, it really increased their respect for the industry. And of course, those who were around for the, for the beginnings of the internet in the, in the early 90s have the exact same experience. The early users, the early adopters, in a lot of cases, were for people who were trying to avoid the government for whatever reason, right? It was the porn industry. It was the, the, the gambling industry, et cetera. It was criminals, money launderers, right? Um, and those still exist, by the way. They still use the internet. And of course, there's right. a, now huge cybercrime divisions of law enforcement who are going after the criminals who still use the internet. But it eventually went mainstream. And so, so much of the criticism of the early internet is, is the same criticism of the digital asset industry. And it's the, it's the same evolution. In fact, actually, it's happening a lot faster because um, especially the younger generations really get it. They're used to digital property. They've, they grew up playing games um, where you had loot boxes and you won things and those things had value and they just intuitively understand it. Most of them have never been in a bank branch and don't know what a paper check is. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> just a different world, dif different generation. Well, you mentioned this broad cross section that that showed interest, you know, in this meet and greet. And I was just wondering, other than those early adopter types or grandma who my hat's off to you is mining Bitcoin in her garage. How does something as technical and complex as the blockchain improve the life of just an ordinary Wyoming rancher, you know, the assistant manager at our local grocery store? Well, I think you're going to ultimately end up using blockchain technology in payments and you won't even realize it because the magic will happen behind the scenes. We think if we use Venmo or Zelle, for example, that that we're sending our friends money in real time. But it's not. It's actually, it looks like it's happening in real time. But the analogy I use is it's going, it's, it's a Ferrari front end with a horse and buggy back end. The, the money is still moving on these very old rickety rails that, that frankly are 40 or 50 years old. The U.S. has really fallen behind in upgrading our payment systems from a technology perspective. And a lot of the reason for that is that basically that monopolies were granted. And what happens when monopolies get granted? The monopolists become fat and happy and don't innovate. And the nice thing about this industry is that there's a lot more innovation happening than, than I think the traditional financial industry would have allowed to happen because they're, they're protected by monopoly. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to watch because you don't need to ask permission to go through these monopoly rails. There are now brand new payment rails. And, and again, it's restoring power to the people. The, the remittance market is so interesting because now someone can actually send Bitcoin through Cash App through Twitter anywhere in the world. And so instead of paying 10% to Western Union, you can send it essentially for free uh, through Twitter. 
So why would you send your money through Western Union if the recipient on the other side had a cell phone? You wouldn't. And again, it's a generational thing. El Salvador is an interesting example. They've right. made Bitcoin and US dollars legal tender. I'm not in favor of forcing people ever to use Bitcoin. I think it should always be voluntary. Voluntary Legal tender forces people to use it. But there are a lot of folks who come to the Western Union offices, for example, and take paper money. And then, of course, there's a lot of crime, a lot of robbery that happens right around those offices. And so if, if the folks who are on the recipient end of a remittance can receive it digitally and get comfortable with using it digitally, that's a game changer for them. Not only are they not paying the, the 10%, but they're also not having to go to the, to the physical office to take physical paper money and then potentially getting robbed on their way back home. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for being honest, also, there's probably unintended consequences that we haven't even thought of, but that's just the nature of change. I mean, I happened to visit El Salvador pretty soon after their dollarizing of their, you know, their money, which I can't even remember what it used to be called. And right. I noticed that, you know, they dollarized, but they didn't penny sized and dime sized and nickel sized. They just went straight to dollars. So everything such as yeah. things that were like, small, small, smaller items, you know, that folks buy their bread there every day, right? You know, they shop differently than we do. So the corner bread shop, you couldn't just buy two pieces of bread, you had to buy a dollar's worth. Yeah, because otherwise, there, there's just no change. They literally worked in so dollar increments. Yeah, right. So, so interesting. It is going to be yeah. interesting to see some of that fallout. Because, you know, there always is something it's hard for us to imagine. Well, um, I recently bought half a beef from a local rancher. Wonderful. Um, yes. Shout out to Morgan Flitner. <laughs> who sent oh, me out. the Flitner Ranch. Yes. I know the, of the Flitner family. There have been Flitners in different generations in Wyoming. Yeah. Right. And there's one in the state legislature right now, Jamie yes. Flitner, my representative. Yes. And it's really nice to know that my meat came from, you know, just down the road. And recently I read you know, as I'm doing research for this episode, I read about something called beef chain. Yes. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. How does that work? And how, how is that considered an improvement on our current system? Uh, well, it's, it's track and trace. So I mentioned earlier that, that one of the uses of this technology is that it makes it easier for multiple parties to track and trace things through supply chains. And I think if most people understood how handled and processed all the food we eat is, they wouldn't want to eat it, right? One of the great things I love about Wyoming, of, among many things, is that we have something called our, our food freedom law, which means that you can go direct to a producer and cut out all the middlemen. Now, you're not getting a USDA inspected half of beef when you buy it direct from, directly from a rancher. The rancher's probably processing it themselves. Um, but that's the difference. You In a lot of the farmer's markets and farm-to-table things that have popped up all across the United States, very popular in the last decade or so, buying local, a lot of that actually has still has been processed through a USDA-approved processor. But Wyoming's food freedom law says, look, if you've got um, – you don't need your kitchen certified. If you want to want to um, jar jams and take that down to your local market and sell it to the local market or at the farmer's market, it doesn't, there's no USDA certification required. 
Um, so Wyoming is unique on, on that front. But what does Beef Chain do? It's a track and trace company for the cattle. So you can go to a restaurant that purchases re- beef that has been tracked and traced through the blockchain, scan a QR code, and it will tell you which ranch your cow grew up on, when it was born, when it was slaughtered, etc. But one of the other really interesting things is right now, because most of the beef does go through the USDA, there is a certification program that each rancher has to go through. This does it through the blockchain. So there is an RFID tag on each cow. It's added at the time of branding. And that RFID tag basically traces that cow throughout its entire life. And that helps with the compliance requirements for those that do actually comply. But then in this little small corner of of the world in Wyoming with its Food Freedom Act, like you, I can go directly to a ranch and I do. And I get my, my beef delivered directly from the rancher and it's not USDA certified. But I know that there's not been a roof over that cow's head and they're, they're grazing mm-hmm. on good Wyoming, Wyoming grass. And they may or may not be certified organic, but frankly, why do they have to be if I know the rancher and I know how they raise their herd? Right. It's it's more trust-based or relationship-based. Well, the, the article I read, the example they gave, the cattle or the beef rather ended up in Japan and it was like mm-hmm. very high-end, I guess, Wagyu beef or I don't know if it was Wagyu, but, you know, high-end beef, certain specifications and I just thought that was really interesting that it could be tracked that way. Right. Oh, it can. And and, and there are some ranchers that want to adopt the technology. And I'm not connected to the details anymore. But uh, two years ago, at the sale barn, the ranchers were able to to receive a higher price per pound for their herd as a result of the fact that it had actually been traced, tracked and traced in in this very easily verifiable way. And so there are some ranchers that are trying to sell to the higher end channels. What do they call it in the, in the beer world? Um, craft beer. They're trying to create craft beef grazed on these beautiful Wyoming prairies. And, you know, we're not throwing down a bunch of pesticides and some of the horror horrors right. um, that a lot of the food that we eat is, is raised in these um, confined animal feeding operations these are happy cows because they're grazing in the open Wyoming prairie. Walmart is using this. They've been tracing, tracking and tracing their produce now for a while. It's, this is probably a few years already. And the whole idea there is if you can remember a few years ago, we had a romaine lettuce recall. Uh, we've had a couple of them in the last five years, maybe, yeah. maybe a little longer, but they've been nationwide and, and literally nobody ate romaine, no Caesar salads for you know months uh, because all the romaine had to be thrown out. Well, if they could actually track where that lettuce came from, which farm it came from, and they knew they had an E. coli outbreak on that particular farm, you wouldn't have had to throw out the entire inventory of romaine lettuce. So it's done to try to reduce, you know, from Walmart's perspective to reduce cost, uh, because if there's a recall, it's a much more targeted recall. But then also that then you can see things through supply chains a lot better. When when everybody who's part of an ecosystem, a supply chain ecosystem, sees what's moving through it, it gives a lot of information to people at the end of the supply chain that they never had before. They can see the inventory moving through. And so this whole idea of playing hide and hide the ball that a lot of 
middlemen, a lot of intermediaries like to do because they're the ones in possession of the information and they have the information asymmetry. They can take advantage of their customers. That kind of breaks down, right? The, the, the whole concept here is we're trying to go much more peer-to-peer, which is what the internet always was. And that can be applied in the physical world and it can be applied in the virtual world too. Well, speaking of the physical world, back in 1977, Wyoming was the first state to authorize the creation of something called limited liability companies or LLCs. Today, that's the most prevalent business form in the U.S. Wyoming has since become the first state to establish something called DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, which it's I'm I'm kind of talking like I know what I'm saying, but I'm really just barely grasping this, that DAOs are a form of a limited liability company. So Correct. I do understand what a limited liability company is, but what is a DAO and how is that a form of an LLC? So the easiest way to understand that is it's a collective organization of people that voluntarily form a, a, a group. And for those who are in the ranching and agriculture industry will understand it as a cooperative. A cooperative is just a group of people who get together to sell their sell what they produce. And you try to have better market power as a result of joining forces. And a DAO is just a modern manifestation of that. Um, another way to think about it is the, the, the industrial revolution People didn't need to organize in formal legal structures prior to the Industrial Revolution. And what what happened during and after the Industrial Revolution is that you saw the corporation form, the limited liability nature of a corporation. People collectively get together to invest in something, start a business, and they form a corporation. And then, as you said, Wyoming in 1977 created the next version of that, which is the limited liability company um, there basically because Delaware corporate law got too complicated and startups were having trouble complying with all the requirements that really applied to big corporations. And so most startups are done in LLCs. Okay. So that's the background. What is a DAO? A DAO is, it is just a digital group of people that come together to do things. And it can be any type of thing. It can be civic organization, charitable organizations. It can be an investing club, etc. And in yesteryear, we would have formed a corporation or an LLC or an agricultural cooperative in order to be recognized as an entity. But today we do it through code. Wyoming is recognizing DAOs as a, as a new form of legal entity, but they don't have to adhere to the formalities of a corporation or a limited liability company, which require putting things down in in words on paper. Well, if something's digital, it's never going to be on paper. If it's natively digital, it never has to be on paper. It can be in the form of computer code. And so this is what Wyoming is recognizing. Now, if an organization is truly decentralized, it never has anybody working for it, never has a CEO never has corporate directors or members of an LLC. If something's truly decentralized, it's, it's never going to register as, as a cooperative, a corporation, or an LLC. But um, the Wyoming Dow Law is essentially a hybrid. It says, all right, people will voluntarily get together, but there has to be a human being involved with this. And what's different about the Wyoming Dow Law is that the operating agreement is allowed to be in the form of computer code. 
And a judge, if there's ever a dispute involving a Wyoming Dow LLC, is required to adhere to the computer code as if it were a written operating agreement. So the advancement that Wyoming made here is to say, all right, we're not going to require words to be written by lawyers on pieces of paper anymore. We're going to recognize the computer code as the same thing. And that's a big advancement towards the digitization of business entity forms. They've taken it even a step further because there is a city Dow or Dow City in Wyoming, just outside of Cody. And mm-hmm. I'm going to go over there. I can't help it. I'm too much of a tourist at heart. I got to see what it. this thing looks like, which I yeah. imagine it looks like a patch of dirt. But um, probably. <laughs> so what does that mean to have a city that is community or, you know, owned in pieces by a bunch of different people who don't reside there? Well, I don't fully know, honestly. I don't, I'm not familiar with all those projects. There have been a couple of different sort of blockchain oasis type organizations, but what they're, you know, cities that have been formed. Uh, and are they incorporated as cities? I don't know. What they're trying to do, I think, is to register property on a blockchain. So you don't have to go down with a piece of paper called a deed to your property. We can we can create that in digital form and register it entirely digitally. So you don't have to ever worry about losing that piece of paper. Same thing with your, with your auto registration or your license plates, right? We can do all that digitally. Now we don't actually have to have the physical stuff. And if it's on a blockchain, then it can be shared by multiple parties. So I think that's probably what they're doing. But to be honest, I don't know about the, I've I've read about the projects. There are multiple different versions of these. And Godspeed, I love the experimentation. That's where the innovation comes from. Most innovation fails, but we should always salute the the innovation as long as it's not a scam. This is how society advances. There's just a literal explosion of innovation in this space. You do have to be careful. I will not ever defend the criminals. And there are scammers and criminals out there, but there are also a lot of legitimate innovators and inventors who are creating really wonderful new things, of which, of course, the most important is Satoshi Nakamoto, who got this whole thing started. Well, how do you tell the wheat from the chaff? Well, that's where you do have to spend some time. And there is no substitute for just rolling up sleeves and figuring it out. Um, That's what I did. And I'm not an engineer by training. I... I just started reading. And 10 years ago, when I started really digging into this, there wasn't much out there. Um, now there's a lot. And, and from organizations that you might respect, you know, accounting firms and, and the like that are, that are publishing how-tos. You don't have to go to large organizations, though. There are just look at people with huge social media followings that will make a lot of free resources available. I'll point you to one right now. A friend of mine, Jameson Lopp. He's at Lopp, L-O-P-P on Twitter. Um, and uh, he has on his pinned tweet, a whole bunch of resources for people who are coming into this new. He's a Bitcoin core developer. And he's somebody who's one of the most respected people in the in this industry. So that's just one place where you can go. Another place where you can go, MicroStrategy is a publicly traded company that has purchased tens of thousands of Bitcoins. And they published a, on their website resources for beginners as well. Um, those are just a couple of examples of places where you can go, but just dig in. And my best advice on this is just dig in. And there's no way to learn it better than doing. I'm definitely going to look those up and, and we'll post it on the website when I get it. So folks will have a single place to go 
check it out. Well, um, you mentioned, and we were talking about in the real world and, and NFTs, you mentioned non-fungible tokens, which you gave us some good examples, like a piece of art, or I can't remember the other example you gave, but sports I think sports, yeah, yeah. sports mm-hmm. things. Yep. So could Frontier Days sell a digital product related to the rodeo as a fundraiser or could a nonprofit? Of course. course. Yeah, by the way, well, and and sorry to interrupt you, but yes, you're, you're, I'm just eagerly answering your questions. Yes, of course, (laughs) all of this. The University of Wyoming, which has a blockchain center and, uh, and is now offering a minor, minor as opposed to a major in blockchain. Um, There there are students graduating with, you know, major in business and a minor in blockchain. Um, And that's coming out of the University of Wyoming and the University of Wyoming athletic department is actually pretty actively involved in NFTs. They did a special, their first NFTs were blankets that were spun from sheep at the agricultural college's um, teaching grounds. And I think there were, I think, 10 that were that were special commemorative. And there was an NFT that came with those. And they, they did about 100 for the University of Wyoming bookstore, and they sold out right away. Um, so, but that's an actual object. What's the NFT yep. part of that? Ah, it's it's that they they purchased the the memorabilia. So you can connect the NFT to a physical object, or you can just have it be entirely digital. It doesn't matter. Um, it, the, the the critical thing is they're they're unique. There there's a finite number of them, and each one is is unique. It's kind of like a numbered photograph that an artist might frame and sell, or uh, you know, a serial number on a dollar bill. These are numbered. They're unique. So the University of Wyoming definitely is involved with this already. So can you decouple the object from the NFT or is, are they both considered one item? So that's a great question. And this is one of the things that makes me skeptical about creating blockchain versions of real things. You can too easily separate them. Something that's natively digital, you can live its entire life natively digital and pass from person to person to person on the blockchain. And that no one, no one will ever question whether that's been decoupled from anything. But if you have an NFT for a Super Bowl jersey and it gets transferred with the jersey, what's to say that the NFT and the jersey can't get separated? Right. So this is one of the reasons why the digital registries of physical things may have limited use. But that doesn't mean that it's non-use, right? We talked about the digital registry of romaine lettuce. Well, that sure is a lot better than not having any registry at all and having to throw out your entire inventory nationwide of romaine lettuce or cull an entire herd because you didn't know that a, that ones that were born on a particular day, you know, didn't get the right vaccines or something like that, right? So it might not be perfect, but it's def- there's definitely something to it for sure. Right. So it kind of speaks to provenance, like how they do with antiques, like being able to actually identify like the chain of possession over time that adds value to something as compared to like, oh, I found a Picasso that no one's ever heard of, but I'm pretty sure it's his. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it it may not be absolutely a hundred percent like as in provenance, because this is where the the chain of possession of evidence in a criminal case really matters. It's never going to be quite 100%. But speaking of, one of the DAOs, the, this Constitution DAO was a wonderful project. It I raised, saw that. I don't know, $45 million, right? Just from regular folks like you and me purchasing the tokens 
to try to be able to buy at auction one of the few original copies of the U.S. Constitution that almost never comes up for sale in an auction house. And so they weren't trying to, to create a DAO to track the provenance of that constitution because that was being tracked through traditional means. And of course, the auction house verified all that. What they were trying to do was just just crowdsourced funds, the kind, kind of like a GoFundMe, except done through a digital autonomous organization that would have been the legal owner of the constitution. And the token owners would have voted on where that constitution should have been displayed to be able to make it available to the people. It was such a wonderful project. And unfortunately, yeah. somebody came in and outbid all of us. But boy, did that show the power of just peer-to-peer networking and crowdsourcing. And this this group raised, I think, $45 million. It was an incredible thing. Yeah, it was. I very recently listened to a whole podcast just about that. And I will link it in the notes, too. I, I can't remember. It was It was several hundred people, I think, who were in the ownership pool at different rates. Oh, Oh, thousands, oh, thousands. Uh, tens of thousands. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was a big yep. group. And among all those many, many people, there were people who had crazy ideas, like dumb ideas. Sure. <laughs> but, right. you know, their ideas were were heard too, but they didn't take on. But I will definitely share that the link to that podcast so that folks can maybe give that a listen if that's something that they're interested in. Back to the real world and roads of Wyoming. What is something that people may not realize about us or about our state? Oh, wow. There's so much history here. I love the Johnson County Cattle War history because that was such a fight over property rights. And it's so relevant to today where our property rights are being invaded all the time. This was at one time a tropical, it was actually all under the ocean. You see the sedimentary rock. The geology of Wyoming is incredible all the dinosaur um, bones that are found here. It's just it, from a geology perspective, it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful place. And of course, this is of course going to sound cliche, but the people here are just great. We're so independent, so curious, so welcoming of tourists. We don't want a lot of people moving in. So some people are not thrilled about this whole blockchain <laughs> initiative because we don't want traffic. We don't want crime. We certainly don't want taxes here. And I get the ethos of that. And so what we're trying to do is bring in revenues without bringing in all the people and the crime and the taxes. That's what exactly we're trying to solve. Boy, it's it's um, Yellowstone is, is, is like Disneyland for adults, truly. And uh, it's a very, very, very special place. It is. What's the hardest thing about living in Wyoming now that you're back? Oh, the wind. I live in a windy part of Wyoming. Southeast Wyoming is pretty windy. It's a natural wind tunnel just because of the mountains. And uh, some days, basically, it's impossible. It's impossible not to have a bad hair day. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's Some days it can, it can grate on you. I don't mind the cold at all. But the, the wind sometimes can, can be tough. It's kind of like, in a way, living on the ocean. The wind never stops blowing because of the temperature differential. And the same thing is true here. The wind, it does stop blowing, but um, on those beautiful days when it stops blowing, it is spectacular here. Um, Well, just to finish up, what do you love the most about Wyoming? It's people. Absolutely. It's people. Again, it's going to sound cliche because everyone loves where they came from, but I, I joke that uh, when I was growing up, it felt like I was in the middle of nowhere and it was very confining and I really wanted to go out and explore the world and move to the big city and leave this behind. And I did. And it only took me about five, 10 years before I started to think about 
how am I going to get back there? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I did end up coming back um, faster than I thought I would. Yeah. It's wonderful to be back. Well, welcome back. And thank you so much for giving us your time today and for trying to help me along my blockchain education. I'm going to look at those uh, links that you shared with us and try to learn a little more. Thank you. Yeah, terrific. Nice, nice to meet you and, and best wishes. Whew, that was a lot. Let me tell you a little bit about the editing process. It entails listening to audio many, many times while you make edits. So I listen to Caitlin's words over and over, and I'm still trying to process and understand this stuff. So thank you for sticking with this. I hope it's making a little more sense to you, and I have some links in the show notes that can also help. So on to today's dot on the map segment, and it's kind of a double dot. Let's go to Clark, Wyoming, and its digital neighbor, City Dow. We'll start with Clark. It's a little easier. It's an unincorporated community of about 300 folks 30 miles north of Cody. It has no town center or services, and the main attraction is the absolutely gorgeous view of the Beartooth Mountains. There's also one little iconic restaurant and bar called the Edelweiss, which I'll definitely be reviewing on TripAdvisor. The Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River runs right through there, and that's why Clark is a historically significant spot. Chief Joseph was the leader of a band of the Nez Perce, who, like so many, had been forcibly removed from their lands. He camped there with the U.S. Army in hot pursuit, and by the time they got to this little bit of Clark's Fork, they were fleeing for their lives and on their way to Canada. His story is so much greater than these brief comments, and I encourage you to read more in the book Chief Joseph and the Flight of the Nez Perce, which is listed in the show notes. On to City Dow, the first of its kind. Dow is, remember, a decentralized autonomous organization. Now, this is a legal structure that's allowable now in Wyoming in which participants share a common goal. How do you become a participant? You buy into it using cryptocurrency. The closest other thing to a DAO is a corporation, but in a DAO, there's no governance, no board, no bosses, no president. Decision-making is made by the collective group of citizens and as citizens of City Dow, they join guilds, which are basically where the work of the city takes place. Last time I checked on their website, there were 5,204 citizens of City Dow in over 100 locations. Now, unlike most of the citizens of City Dow, I've been there. After talking to Caitlin, I just knew I had to. Uh, I didn't get the t-shirt, though, because... There is nothing there. It is indeed a patch of sagebrush with a few rocky hills. Now, it doesn't mean that there will never be anything there, but right now you wouldn't even know it was there. So if you want to keep track of the grand plans, check out their website linked in the show notes. If you want to see what is actually there, I posted some pictures on Instagram. <laughs> I was also curious about ownership of the property listed on their website, so I checked with the Park County's online map server, and that address is owned by a couple living in Castle Rock, Colorado. 
Interesting. I was expecting it to be owned by City Dow, so I still have questions. Well, before going into the wildlife segment and what kind of wildlife could I possibly connect to cryptocurrency, first I want to throw some information at you on non-fungible tokens or NFTs. These were mentioned in my conversation with Caitlin. Well, I really wanted to offer an NFT with this episode. From what I can tell, most NFTs are just highly pixelated images. So I thought it would just be a really fun thing to add on. Well, I tried, folks. I really tried. First, I went about trying to buy a custom $15 logo using an online freelance marketplace. But I had no idea what I was doing. And I could never really make myself understood by the artist, so I gave that up. Then I figured out a way to make my own highly pixelated version of my logo. Yay! By the time I figured that out, I also learned that most people in the know consider 99% of NFTs to be absolutely worthless and maybe even kind of scammy. So instead of selling my NFT to nobody for almost nothing, I'm just going to give it away. And I will send it to you for free. Just email me at wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. So on to Wyoming wildlife. While going through Clark or City Dow, you will almost surely see some pronghorn antelope. But they were on the last episode's Wyoming wildlife. So today's is a rarely seen critter. The northern rubber boa snake. Now that sounds so tropical, doesn't it? But they are actually native to Wyoming. And they're one of only two boas native to the U.S. These are small and nocturnal, very rarely seen snakes. And they're considered a species of greatest conservation need in Wyoming. So if you are lucky enough to see one, it would be in a warmish, moist habitat. Anywhere from mountain foothills to alpine areas. And northern rubber boas are non-venomous and are among the smallest of the boas. They have smooth, shiny skin that looks almost loose, which is what gives them a rubbery appearance. And another extraordinary feature is that the females give birth to live young. They are soft and squishy looking, almost like worms. Rubber boas are known to be so gentle and docile that they are often used to help people overcome their fear of snakes. And again, they are rare and in need of conservation. So if you're lucky enough to spot one, please do not disturb it. Just enjoy it and let the Game and Fish know. I have a link in the show notes. They say they want to know. Well, this episode really gave us a run for our cryptocurrency, didn't it? I know it was a huge learning opportunity for me. And I hope you enjoyed the challenge. As always, if you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want advance notice of the next episode, email me, wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. Let's follow each other on Instagram, wyomingmy307, all one word. And that's it. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again. Bye. 